Okay, have you turned with me to Daniel chapter 7? Daniel chapter 7, that's page 788 in Daniel chapter 7. We've been studying together. This is number 13, by the way. Looks like that's what it says there, alright? 13 times we've met together and we're beginning to know one another. Well, I hope you're beginning to realize that the real issue isn't a mechanical issue. The real issue is not the mark versus the seal. It isn't Babylon versus Jerusalem. It's not even the worship of the beast as opposed to the worship of God. As important as that would be, you would understand that that's important. That in a sense is the issue. Ah, but friends, there's a greater issue in the heart of God because God has a heart of love and His issue is to get you and me into the kingdom of heaven. His issue is to be able to warn you for what's coming because what's coming is going to deceive oodles of people. And I don't know how else to say it. It's going to... deceive most of the people in this world. And He does not want anyone deceived, much less does He want you deceived. You've taken the time to come here. You've taken the time to hear the Word of God. And so God is anxious. God is solicitous. He wants you. And He wants you to have salvation. So the real issue is spiritual. God wants us to have salvation. And He wants us to know that salvation is by faith in the gift of the righteousness of His Son. Salvation is not by faith in the inventions of men. So friends, don't think you cannot be deceived. Open your hearts, open your minds to receive the Word of God because that's the only weapon that God has in this world besides the people that He uses is His Word. This is where we stand, you and I. So the question tonight is, who is the enemy? Who is the beast? And what is the mark, the mark of the beast? So let's start looking, first of all, at the beast. Uh, in Daniel chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there because I've got you in Daniel chapter 7, we've already, this is just review, we've already seen that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in Daniel chapter 2, and God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar what the history of the world would be like. So He revealed that to him in advance. And He said to Nebuchadnezzar, there would be four world empires before there's anything else. And so we saw that Babylon was a world empire, Medo-Persia was a world empire, Greece was a world empire, and finally the pagan Roman Empire was an empire, as, as, as you know. Okay? Finally, we saw in the dream that the Roman Empire, the, the pagan Roman Empire, broke up, it divided into ten toes in the image that we saw there in Daniel chapter 2, even though we didn't study Daniel chapter 2 together. And these ten toes were made up of clay and iron, and so they didn't mix. They just would not cleave together. So now we're going to Daniel chapter 7, and it's the same prophecy. And that's what happens in the book of Daniel. The, the first time the prophecy comes is in Daniel chapter 2. The same prophecy is repeated in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, and also in Daniel chapter 11. Uh, 11. But with every re- repetition comes more information More information. So we pick up the prophecy that was a repeat from Daniel 2 in Daniel chapter 7, except with significant new wrinkles. So we're in Daniel chapter 7 now. Look at verse 24 with me. This is prophetic. Daniel chapter 4. And this is a dream that Daniel had. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And you can almost imagine Daniel going back in his mind, remembering, saying, hey, I've heard something like this before. In Daniel chapter 2, there was an image and he had ten toes and they represented ten kings or ten ten kingdoms. Okay? 
Let's go to verse 8. We'll come back to verse 24 in just a second. We're in Daniel chapter 7. We're looking at verse 8. And I considered the horns, that's the ten horns, which are uh, the same as the ten toes in Daniel chapter 2. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn. That's eleven horns. And there's a little horn that comes up among them, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in the horn, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And the word great here means blasphemous. So, here's a little horn and a little entity. It's a horn, just like the other horns. The other horns are nations. And so, this little horn is a nation also. It comes up among them, and by this little horn, three of the other ten horns are plucked out. And this horn represents a man. It's got the eyes of a man in any case. And, what did it say? It has a mouth speaking, that is, speaking blasphemous things. Amazing. Well, this little horn troubled Daniel. We can see that in verse 15. It upset him, as it were. Verse 15, And it came to pass when when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning of the vision, then behold, there stood before me... Am I in the right place? Yeah, verse... Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse 15, chapter 7. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit. Notice how he's feeling now. He's grieving. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body and and in the visions of my head troubled me. And so he was troubled. He was upset by what he saw. Now, why would you think that he's upset for seeing what he's seeing? Well, the reason he's upset, now he's beginning to realize that this little horn that's in Daniel chapter 7 is against God's people. Now, it's one thing, you know, to watch CNN news and you see news, secular news about what's happening in the world. There's a war here, there's a war there, this is happening, a nation rises, a nation falls, whatever, whatever. You don't get upset about that, it's secular news. But what would happen, do you think, if all of a sudden, on the news, they would come up, the news saying that your church, the people you belong to, is being attacked by another nation, they're trying to wipe out your church, your people. How would you feel? Well, this is what's happening to Daniel here because all of a sudden he's realizing that God's people, which are his people, God's people are going to suffer in the future at the hands of this little horn and it troubles him. Verse 21 and 25, chapter 7. And I beheld, and the same horn, that's the little horn, made war with the saints and prevailed against them. It prevailed against them. And Daniel is thinking, oh no, this is not good. You know, these are God's people and they're being prevailed against by this entity, this little horn, which represents a nation. Verse 25. And he shall speak, that little horn again, shall speak or great words, that is blasphemous words, against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hands, that is the saints will be given into his hands, until a time and times and the dividing of times. Well, this is secular history, but it's not just secular history, because now God's people are implicated in this. Verse 28. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitation much troubled me, and my countenance changed at me, but I kept the matter in my own heart. So he was all upset, but he didn't say anything to anyone. 
He was just not feeling good about this. He didn't know what to think about it because the thing had been explained fully. He just knew that in the future there would be a nation represented as a little horn that would make trouble for God's people, that would blaspheme God. So, here's the question. Who is this little horn? So, let's examine the descriptions that we've just read of the little horn, or at least the circumstances surrounding the little horns. We saw in verse 24, and we can read verse 24 again, just the beginning, that's what we saw. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. Well, we know that when the Roman Empire was broken up, ten nations rose up. That was represented by the ten toes of the, of the image, and it's also represented now by the ten horns in, uh, in Daniel chapter 7. And the ten kingdoms that were made up were made up of Germany, Switzerland, France, Italy, England, Portuguese, Spain, and three extinct nations. Well, they weren't extinct at that time. And those were the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. Now, if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, we find out what happened. And it says, Another shall rise after them. That's the little horn rising among the, uh, among the ten horns here. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. So here we have ten kings, but three of them are uprooted. We saw that in another verse. Here it says, three kings shall be, shall be, what does it say? Subdued. That's what it said. See, my brain's not working very well. Anyway, that's what we've got here. And so here we have, and if you just want to go back to history, the Emperor Zeno, he was the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time. The Emperor Z- Z- Zeno, he defeated the Heruli in the year 493 AD. After that, the Emperor Justinian exterminated, exterminated the Vandals in the year 534 AD. And then he broke the power of the Ostrogoths four years later. This is the year 538 This is a very important date now. This is the year 538. The prophecy is that there would be ten nations, but three would be uprooted. Okay? And they would be uprooted by this little horn power, at least on behalf of this little horn power. And the year that it finally was all done was the year 538. Apparently that made room, of course, for that little horn power to have a place among the nations somehow. He became the religious leader, actually, of, the West, of Western Rome. So, in Daniel 7, verse 24, it says that this little horn is diverse from the first. What does the word diverse mean? <coughs> Different. This little horn is not like the other nations. There's ten toes. They're all nations, you know, France and Germany and England and Spain and Portugal and the, the Heruli and the Ostrogoths. And they're all nations, all the same But this little horn comes up among them and for its sake, three of them are uprooted and then that makes room for this little horn that is not the same as the other nations. Now, what is it about it that's not the same? Well, friends, kings and kingdoms are usually political in nature and enforced by a military. You know, most nations have a military. But as this little, how shall we say, bishop of Rome, that's what what happened here, as this bishop of Rome took his seat, he gained more and more and more power until he became not only a religious power, but he also became a political power. And it is so to this day. We know that. Now, that is different. It's very, very different. Usually, a nation 
is a nation, but it's not a church. And a church is a church, but it's not a nation. But the Vatican is both a church and a nation at the same time. We know that. Go with me to Daniel chapter 7. And so this is the little power that grew up among the ten horns. We're back to verse 21 in Daniel chapter 7. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. And verse 25, what did we read a while ago? Same again. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So now I would like to ask you, I don't know, you may know history, you may not know history. I'm a history buff and so I've studied a lot of these things. Uh, it, can we ask the question, has the Roman power ever engaged in persecution? Oh yes, we know that it has. In the Inquisition in Spain, in the Holy Crusades that it waged in the Thirty Year War. As a matter of fact, if you were to read Fox's Book of Martyr, do you know that Fox's Book of Martyr would tell you that at least 50 million people were killed because they rejected that church and decided that they would read the Bible? that they would base their lives and their salvation on the Bible. And so, I'm afraid to say it, I'm sorry to say it, but it happens to be true. In those days at that time, there was religious wars that was going on all the time, and the Roman church made war against the saints of God, made war against people who would read and believe their Bible at that time. And that's why it was called the Dark Ages. Why do you think it was called the Dark Ages? It was a dark time. For sure. In verse 25, it also says there that this same power would think to change times and laws. Did the papal power attempt to change God's divine law? Why, sure. It's very easy to see. I mean, you can read your Bible. You can go to Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 20, you find the Ten Commandments. They're all listed there. But if you were to go to a, a, a Roman Catholic catechism, what would you find? you would find the second commandment has been removed altogether. It's not there in the catechism. And the tenth commandment has been split in half to keep the number ten. Well, why would they remove the second commandment? Well, it says because you're not to make any graven images. Have you ever been in a Catholic church? What do you have on all the walls? Well, all kinds of carved images. They're statues. That's what they are. And the Bible strictly says, thou shalt not have any craven images. Now, they will have an argument. I grew up a, a Roman Catholic. I understand the situation. And we used to say, well, we're not worshipping those statues. Those are just statues. It just reminds us of God and it reminds us of the saints and all these things. Well, let me tell you, let me ask you a question. If this is so, why did they remove the commandment out of the catechism? Why? Because they understand that that's not what God wanted and so they took the commandment and threw it out. They changed that law so that we would not, so that people who don't understand, would, who do not read the Bible would not know. They would see Ten Commandments and they would read Ten Commandments and the one is missing and they don't know anything about it. Not only that, but the biblical seventh day Sabbath was changed to a traditional Sunday worship. Now, that's another change in the law. And finally, in verse 25, we also see that the little horn would exercise this power for a time and times and half a time. Now, what would that mean? Do you understand what this is saying? Prophetically, this means that one time is one year, which is 360 days, because we're using the, um, we're using the Jewish calendar here, and the Jewish calendar has 30 days in it. 
And so if you take, if you take 12 months at 30 days, it's 360 days. Times is that times two equals 720 days. And a half a time is a half a year equals 180 days. And so the total is 1260 days. That's what is represented there. So from the fall of the Ostrogoths in 538 to the fall of the papacy, in 1798 equals 1260 years. Now, what happened in 1798? Do you know? What happened? Yes. Do you know? And I, you know, I've always known that. Well, I've known that for a long time. Do you know that I just lately I found out what was happening? And I don't know all the details because I haven't had time to study it into, into it in all details. But on December 28th, 1797. Now, notice the date. It's 1797. That's earlier than 1798. In December 28, 1798, a group that belonged to the papacy, uh, I mean, people under the papacy, caused a riot in Rome. Now, they did not intend what happened there, and the Pope certainly didn't intend that this should happen, but during the riot, a brigadier general by the name of Dufault, which was a brigadier general of Napoleon, was killed in the riot. Now, the Pope was, ooh, he was scared to death, because Napoleon, if you remember Napoleon, he nearly, you know, he nearly conquered the whole world. And so the Pope knew that he was in trouble, but it was too late, the thing had happened, and and Napoleon was in furiated by the fact that Dufault had been killed, his brigadier general. And so he marched on Rome not two and a half months later. Something like two and a half months later. It's February 10, 18, or 1798. And he proclaimed, I'm not quite sure, he proclaimed the Vatican or Rome or all of Italy. He, repro- he proclaimed it a Vatic- excuse me, a Roman Republic. He took the pro- prisoner and he sent him into exile and the Pope died a year and a half later, August 29. 1999. At last, excuse me, 1799. Thank you. At last, the Roman Church was no longer a political power in the world. It was still a religious power in the world. And that's fine. That's fine. But it was no longer a political power in the world. It never, it no longer had the power to say to an army in England and say, I need your help to go and fight for some, for me over here. Or to say to Switzerland, I need your help to go and fight with heretics over there. It did not have this power anymore. And let me tell you what, the people in the world really felt like its power was broken forever. Okay. Now we're going to transfer from Daniel chapter 7 to Revelation chapter 13. Daniel chapter 7 to Revelation chapter 18. As you know, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel are sister books or brother books or whatever you want to call them. They uh, supplement each other. They complement each other. The prophecies in Daniel are very much the same prophecies that are in the book of Revelation. And the prophecies in Revelation are the same prophecies, only they add more details and they interplay one with the other. And you can't understand one book unless you understand the other because those books are used by God to bring light to the other. You understand? And so it is that way. So the little horn power that we've just been looking at in Daniel chapter 7 represents the papal power. Well, we're going to look at the first beast of Daniel chapter 13. By the way, we're going to look at the second beast tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, the title is America in Prophecy. It's the second beast that we see in Revelation chapter 13. Tonight, we look at the first beast. 
Now, we've already established that a beast, of course, is a king or a kingdom. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13 now, and we're looking at verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast, an animal, rise up out of the sea. Do you remember what the symbolism for sea is? Uh Uh-huh, it's multitudes and peoples and nations and languages. And so what are we seeing here? We're seeing a nation rise up out of a very populated area. And of course, we know that it's already, we already know that it's Europe. So, I stood on the sand of the sea and saw this nation rise up out of the populated area, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. And of course, we could go back to Revelation chapter 17. We did all that the other day, and we saw saw that blasphemous beast again in that chapter, and we kind of understand what all that is. You remember also that the beast in Revelation 17, same beast, had seven heads and ten horns, and we did explain what the seven heads were. You remember what they were? Well, we didn't explain totally. Let's go back to Revelation 17. We want to come back here in a minute, but I... I'm sure I didn't explain it fully and I am pretty sure I'm not going to explain it fully this evening. I'm going to leave some gaps. Um, so for you to study and you can come back tomorrow and tell me what you've discovered, if you've discovered anything. Now I want you to ask this question to yourself or ask me the question. <laughs> uh, this beast has seven heads. What are, who are the seven heads? Do you know that in studying prophecy, the Bible has to answer his own questions? That it has to be a biblical answer. You can't just picking things out of the air and say, I think it's this and I think it's that. It's got to be in the Bible. So, let's go to verse um, 10. Verse 10. It's Revelation chapter 17. We're looking at verse 10. There are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. Now, who are they? Bible answer. No other answer is acceptable. <laughs> That's how it's going to be. Well, five are fallen. That's easy, isn't it? Babylon is fallen. Medo-Persia is fallen. Greece is fallen. Pagan Rome is fallen. And in 1798, who fell? Papal Rome fell at that time. Five are fallen. Then it says one is. And then, let me read it again here. The other is not yet come, and we're going to be studying that one tomorrow night. This is America and Prophecy, and there it is right there. That six heads, we already know who they are. Who is the one that's not, that is, that says, that is? Which head is that? Where is that? Who is that? And just to give you a hint, you can find the answer to that in Revelation chapter 11. And I'm not telling you who it is. You come back tomorrow and tell me who it is. Okay? Let's go back to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, we're looking at verse 2. And the beast which I saw, this nation which I saw rise out of a populated area, was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And so we have here this beast described, but it's like a lion, it's like a leopard, it's like a bear... What is the description of this? Well, that's easy enough. If we go back to Daniel, remember, Daniel supplements and complements Revelation. If you go back to Daniel chapter 7, you can see that Babylon was described as a lion. 
and Medo-Persia was described as a leopard, and Greece was described as a bear. And so we have here, this beast, this nation, has the characteristics of... What did I say wrong? You're smiling too much. <laughs> huh? Oh, is it the other way? Bear? Yes, whatever. Okay, the bear is Medo-Persia and the leopard is Greece. Yeah. I'm glad you're here. I'd be talking nonsense if I was here by myself. <laughs> yeah, where were we anyway? Anyway, they have this, this beast that's coming out. Revelation 13, verse 1, has the characteristics of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, that's what this is all about. Now, who's the dragon? It says the dragon gives it its seat. Do you know who the dragon is? If you go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. The answer is right there. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan. But you can't get it in clearer than that. Which deceives the whole world. So, who's the dragon? And what does he do? He gives this beast its seat. Do you know what that means? Seat of authority. Well, as a matter of fact, we're going to see that in a minute. It uses the very words, seat of authority, in chapter 13, verse 3. We're going to read that in a little while. So, here's a principle we need to understand. Both Satan and God work through their followers. That's the ground rules. I don't know why God decided that it would be that way, but it is that way. And so, Satan has to work through his entities here in this world, and God has a church, and he works through his church here in this world. During the time of the Roman Empire, Satan used the Roman Empire to try to destroy God's people, to try to destroy God's Son. You remember that, don't you? Go to Revelation chapter 12 again. We'll just back one, one, par- one chapter. Revelation chapter 12. And we begin reading from verse 1 to verse 4. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman. What does that represent? That's a church. Yes. Clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And upon her head a crown of twelve stars representing the twelve apostles or the twelve patriarchs. Whichever you would like. And she being with child cried travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold a great red dragon. We know who that is. Having seven heads. Notice again having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head, and his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven, talking about a third of the angel deceived by him, and did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered. What for? To devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, who's the child? Jesus is about to be born during the Roman Empire, during that time, and the dragon is waiting there, to devour, devour that child, but the dragon can't devour the child. He has to use what he has down here in this world. And so, who is it that actually tried to kill the baby Jesus? Yeah, Herod the Tetrarch. That's who it was. And so, the dragon worked through pagan Rome. Do you know that it was pagan Rome that tried to put, that did put Jesus on the cross of Calvary? Do you know that it's Pilate? He was a governor, a Roman governor who who sentenced Jesus to death. Do you know that it was a Roman seal that was on Jesus' tomb? Sure. It was the Roman Empire that was used of Satan, uh, the great red dragon. Now we, we read, we read, the dragon gave his seat of authority to the beast. Who's the beast? Well, we already know. 
But let me reiterate that with you. In the 4th century, an emperor, Constantine, decided to move the Roman Empire, the seat of the Roman Empire, to a place called Byzantine at that time. And he changed the name of it to Constantinople. That's, he named it after himself. He left the bishop of, he left the bishop, he had been in Rome, that was his seat of authority at that time, and he left the bishop to become the bishop of Rome and to establish his authority there. So he gave him his seat. Just as the Bible says, the bishop of Rome, who is it? The Papa, the Father, the Pope, that's what it's called, gradually gained power and more power and more power as the head of this church. And finally, of course, he was not the head of the church only, but he was also the head of the state called Vatican City. Do you know that Vatican City is still a country to this day? Considered to be a nation to this day? Do you know that most nations send ambassadors to the Vatican nation? Isn't that amazing? It never would have happened in America a hundred years ago. Oh no, not even in the time of John F. Kennedy. Do you know that in the time of John F. Kennedy, the Protestants were wringing their hands in this country because a Catholic president had been had been elected and they thought for sure that he's going to join hands with the papacy. Well, he didn't do it. He didn't dare do it. That wasn't politically correct in those days. And he couldn't do it. Ah, but since then, has it happened? Yeah. Oh, my, it's amazing. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of forefathers that would be turning in their graves if they knew what has happened down here in America today. So now we know who the beast is. What is the mark of the beast? That's what we've got to focus on now. We've already seen that God seals His people with a sign. God has a sign that He puts on the forehead of His people. Now, it's not a sign that you can see, obviously. I don't see anybody here with a mark on their foreheads. They're not stamped with anything. No, the forehead is where the frontal lobe is. The forehead is where we make our judgments. That's where we reason. That's where we have a conscience. That's where we think. And reason things out. That's what it means that he puts his mark there. He, he convicts our conscience that something is right. And when we adopt that very thing, then we become the children of God. Now, after having said that, I need to be careful. I can't say, oh, there's people out there because they don't have that sign. They're not the people of God. There's a lot of people who don't know a lot of, there's a lot of people who are living up to their, to the light they have, to the conscience that they know they are the people of God. But there's coming a time when the whole world is going to make, there's going to be a line in the sand and the whole world is going to know what is the seal or the sign of God and what is the mark of the beast or the sign of the beast's authority. Yes. And we've already seen as we studied together that the Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath is a sign God himself saying in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 20 and verse 12, God himself said, the Sabbath is a sign between me and my people. That's what it says. It's a sign of his authority. It's the sign of his ownership. Ah, but the beast of Revelation 13, that same little beast, that same little horn in Revelation chapter, excuse, Daniel chapter 7, is in rebellion against God. And it has its own mark and its own sign. And we're going to turn our attention now to the screen. Because we're going to look at some wording in the Catholic Catechism. 
here's a question that's in the Catholic Catechism, and I have to apologize for the English. How prove you is a strange way to approach things, but anyways, that's what it says. How prove you, how do you prove that the church has power to command feasts and holy days? How can you prove that God has given this church that kind of power? And notice the answer here. This is out of the Catechism. It says, by the very act of changing the Sabbath to Sunday, which Protestants allow of, and therefore fondly contradict themselves by keeping Sunday strictly and breaking most other feasts commanded by the same church. What is it saying here? It's saying we have the power to change the, change the commandments of God. There's no, nowhere in the Bible does it say that we should be worshipping on Sunday. We took the authority upon ourselves. We changed the worship day from Saturday to Sunday. That's the power we have. And Protestants who used to protest against us now keep the same day that we have instituted. They are hypocrites. Whoa. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, true, it is. Keep looking. This is the next question in, well, it's not the next question in, in sequence, but it's the next question we have right out of, the, out of the catechism. Again, this is page 58. Have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals and precepts? That's the question. And the answer out of the catechism is, had she not had the Catholic Church, and notice she's a she, even, even the Catholic Church agrees that the symbolism of a woman is a church. Had she not had such power, she could not have substituted the observance of Sunday for the first day, which, uh, which is the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day, a change for which there is no scriptural authority. The Catholics know that that is so. And you can have an evangelistic series and you go in a big city and have an evangelistic series and say, you know, there is no authority in the Bible for changing Sabbath to Sunday and people will go home and search the Scriptures and search the Scriptures and they will go to their pastors and the pastor says, yes, we can prove it. After all, Paul did have a worship service on a Sunday one time. That proves it and on and on and on. There's all kinds of verses that are being pulled up and yet none of them actually prove a thing because there is no the Catholic Church holds there isn't. Well, for sure. Uh-huh. And so we can see it. Sunday worship is the mark of the Roman Church's authority. The Catholic Church doesn't only admit this, actually she boasts of it. Uh, um, a man by the name of, let me see here, C.F. Thomas, which is the Chancellor to the Cardinal Gibbons in October 28, 1895, said this, this act, this act of changing the Sabbath to Sunday is the mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority. That's her what? Her mark. Her mark of her authority. Her, it's the mark of that nation's authority. Now friends, when we, when we read the Bible and we see the mark of the beast, there's pictures that get into our heads like the mark of the beast. Ooh. Well, the word beast only means nation because it's a symbol for a nation. And so really what we've got here is the mark of a nation, the mark of its authority. And so the Vatican is a nation and it has authority. It thinks to have enough authority to change God's law. It really doesn't have that authority, but it's taken that prerogative. And what's made that authority so popular and so powerful is that the people have adopted it. The people have received it. It hasn't changed the law. The law remains the same. The Ten Commandments are still the same. The Bible is still the same. 
but the people have gone in a different direction. They have accepted the tradition of men as opposed to the law of God, to the word of God. Uh, where are you in this? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13 again. Revelation chapter 13. We're going now to verse 3 in Revelation chapter 13. And I saw one of his heads, that's the beast that came up in Revelation 13 verse 1. Remember, it has seven heads and we've already enumerated them, who they are, except for one. And you can tell me which one that is tomorrow after you've researched it. Well, now in verse 3 it says, One of his heads, as it were, was wounded to death. Hmm. When did the Roman church receive a deadly wound? Well, we've already, we've already studied that. In 1798, at the end of the 20, 1260 years of rule, General Berthier, Napoleon's general, captured and exiled the Pope and destroyed the church's political power. And from that moment, the church had no more political power, only it was a religious entity. But notice the rest of verse 3 now. We're in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. Fatal wound. And his deadly wound was healed. He was resurrected. How do you like it? His deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after this political power, after this nation. Hmm. Is the deadly wound healed? Well, do you know that the answer is no? No, no. Oh, we often, the historians and theologians and people who preach these kind of things says, yes, the deadly wound was healed in 1929 when Mussolini reinstated the Vatican as a political nation. Well, that's, that's fine. But do you know that the deadly wound was not healed? Oh, no. It only began to be healed there. Do you know that a wound is not healed until you can do what you used to do before? If you break your leg and it begins to heal and you still can't walk on it, it's not healed yet, can you? And until the Roman church can do as it used to do in the past, its wound is not healed. But it, I tell you what, it had a significant help. It got a, it got a cast on its leg, one on its head, I guess. Right? In 1929, Mussolini reinstated it as a nation. And from that time, the Roman Catholic power has been rebuilding, rebuilding, rebuilding. And we know it, we know it. Just watch just the past histories and see how powerful this entity has become. How powerful is it? Just, just how powerful is it? Just in 1989, the, the Catholic Church took on Russia with the help of America. And what did they do to Russia? Yeah, they brought it down. They destroyed communism. Not fully. Not fully. Yeah. But they sure made a dent in it, didn't they? There's amazing power there. And when the two combined, the church and the state, the Roman Catholicism and America combined together and they go after something, there's a lot of power behind those two. And so the deadly wound is being healed. And the power is being regained. And one of these days we're going to feel its power. We really are. We're still in Revelation 13, verse 6 to 8. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is his sanctuary. We 
been mostly studying the sanctuary tonight. We haven't looked at the sanctuary very much, except that we see right here in the verse that this entity wants to trod the sanctuary underfoot and has the and the tabernacle and then that and them that dwell in heaven. And so it wars on earth and against them that are in heaven for sure. Verse seven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Not good news. And power was given him over all kindred and tongue and nation. Isn't that amazing? How much power is that? Is that a time that's coming? It's coming. In verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. How many? All. All except, you remember Daniel chapter 3? Three Hebrew boys, Hebrew men, decided that they would not bow very small number compared to how many were there. Yeah. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, whose names, now notice who they are, are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. Ah, but that means that there will be names written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so we see here that in the end of days, the whole world is going to be polarized. There's going to be the great majority. As a matter of fact, it says here, all the world shall worship after the beast. That's what it says, the whole world. Ah, but there is a book, and it's the book of the Lamb, and the Lamb was slain at the cross of Calvary. There are some people who are going to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Their sins are going to be forgiven. They are going to be given grace to become, as it says in Revelation chapter 14, without fault before the throne of God. And there's going to be a huge war between these, these two entities. Except that it's going to be a lopsided war. The whole world against a very small remnant. A very small group of people. Wow. In that day, whose side are you going to be on? Will the Bible be your foundation? Or will you stand on the foundation built by the traditions of men? Will you worship God on the day that He has instituted to be worshipped on? Or are you going to worship on a false Sabbath, which is Sunday? Will you be sealed with the seal of the living God? Or will you be marked with the mark of the beast? Will you stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the face of sanctions and a death decree? Or will you bow to the image of the beast? And by the way, that's what we're studying tomorrow night. American prophecy is going to make an image to the beast. And that's our topic tomorrow night. Now, on whose side are you on? Do you know which side you want to be on? Are you going to be on that side in that day? That's a big question. If day by day we can't handle the little, the little tests that come our way, how are we going to stand in a day when the whole world is against us? Are you going to stand? Ah, friends. I'll be praying for me (laughs) and I'll be praying for you, God's people, because many of us will be lost unless we really know where we should stand. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.